Welcome to the Independent Outlook coming to you from the Independent Institute in California. I'm Graham Walker, uh, and we are here today to provide you a kind of principled nonpartisan assessment of the issues of the day. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a freewheeling discussion among the three of us here, and we're delighted to have everybody with us who is tuning in and following us uh, in this series. Uh, we are also very grateful to thinkspot.org for being our partner in this. Um, thanks a lot, ThinkSpot, and all of our friends who are coming to us through ThinkSpot. So, um, as I said, I'm Graham Walker, and we have um, you know, research scholars and fellows all around the United States and some overseas even, um, and all of them uh, work to provide a kind of a non-partisan, independent view of things. Um, our scholars' purview is certainly national in scope, but sometimes international. Our vantage point uh, makes us a little bit unique. I mean, here we are uh, right across the bay from San Francisco or a stone's throw from Silicon Valley uh, here in California. Um, we bring a principled outlook, um, but um, we also are not easily mapped on the typical right-left spectrum as we view things in public policy. So um, as a result of that, um, we think we are, are going to bring you some interesting outlook on some of the news of the day. And uh, the, we're able to do this because we have some interesting, complex minds with us who are part of our team. Featured with me today, my two colleagues, first of all, uh, David Thoreau. Welcome, David. Welcome to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have David Thoreau in particular because uh, David Thoreau started the Independent Institute some 34 years ago. He's got many dozens of books uh, produced under his belt uh, and has created uh, quite a platform for principled and indeed independent uh, policy analysis here. Also joining us today uh, is my colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers. Thank you, Graham. Glad to have you here, uh, Dr. Evers. Bill Evers is the head of our Center on Educational Excellence. He was for many years a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. So it's really good to have uh, Bill Evers with us today. Okay, so uh, let's get into some of the topics of the day. Just a preview for those of you who are joining us. So we're gonna talk about the top news story of the day in just a moment, you know what that is. Um, and then we're, after that, we're gonna talk a little bit about President Trump's executive orders. Then we're gonna talk a little bit about back to school panic and a few other issues, but starting with what's probably on everybody's mind, first of all, Joe Biden has in fact selected Kamala Harris as his running mate. Uh, she would be, if elected, the Vice President of the United States. I understand that yesterday on uh, one of those TV talking heads programs that there was quite a controversy around how to pronounce her name. So I'm gonna make sure that I don't make any mistakes. I'm un understand I'm supposed to say Kamala Harris not Kamala, not Kamala, but Kamala. So we'll, we'll try and get that right. And hopefully uh, Senator Harris will be generous with us if we don't get the pronunciation just right every time. So, okay, uh, Kamala Harris. Um, people might be interested to think what the view of her may be from here in California, as well as the view from elsewhere. So uh, as a Californian, uh, David Thoreau, uh, what do we know about Kamala Harris? She's been with us for a while. Well, we know quite a bit. Uh, we know that she was born in the Bay Area in Berkeley. She went to elementary school there. She's a Berkeley uh, girl. She was a Berkeley girl. And she then, uh, her parents got divorced. Um, I think it was around the age of 11 or 12. And she and her sister were moved by her mother to Montreal. So she graduated from high school there. 
She then went to Howard University, got her undergraduate degree, and then went to uh, Hastings Law School in San Francisco and got her JD. Um, and my sister went to Hastings. You're right. Uh-huh. And so she <laughs> she's had many uh, positions. She ended up as a chief prosecutor in San Francisco. Uh, then was elected to the Senate in San, in uh, California. Um, she is extremely ambitious. And a, uh, an attorney general in California. Yeah, she general. was our attorney general yes, that's first. Right. That's right. Before yeah. Senate. That's right. So the big headlines are, are all, you know, I'm seeing, especially from the major newspapers uh, since yesterday, Joe Biden shows that he wants to align himself with the moderate wing of the Democratic Party instead of the progressive wing. Uh, David, does that ring true with what you know as a longtime observer of our senator? It depends on what period of her, of her life you're referring to. Uh, two years ago, uh, GovTrack.us rated her as the fourth most liberal or progressive member of the Senate. Uh, this that past was in year, 2018. Right. 2019, she was rated as the most liberal or progressive, more progressive than uh, Sanders. In fact, I believe that right behind Sanders was Killebrand and then uh, Merkley and then Booker and so on. So mm-hmm. she was clearly trying to reposition herself um, as the most liberal member of the Senate, uh, partly, mm-hmm. I, I think, because she is very, as I have said, she's very ambitious. Uh, and I think there's a certain um, inauthentic, opportunistic nature to her history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see it when you go back to her record as prosecutor in San Francisco and on and on. Um, I, I agree, David. I think that when she was a prosecutor in San Francisco, she was ambitious to become state attorney general. And right. so as a prosecutor, she just overlooked all sorts of errors. She, she was kind of committing criminal justice travesties. So she so so let's say there was a technician in a lab that was testing drugs and this person was falsifying or sabotaging the results, you're supposed to tell the defense attorney right away, Mm. hey, oh, gee, even though her office knew all about this, they didn't bother. And so she, she had a record over time of standing behind and fighting to sustain wrongful convictions that were uh, based on false testimony, falsified mm-hmm. evidence, mm-hmm. not giving exculpatory information to defense attorneys. And it was because she wanted to have, and I don't think she had some principled reason for this. She mm-hmm. just wanted to appear tough on crime in some way and go to the next step. So as a, as a result, though, because of the police reform sentiment that's out there right now, uh, you see progressives saying, oh, Joe Biden just gave us the finger. You know, that's the kind yeah, of right. things that you're seeing in social media right now. Yeah. At the same time, though, um, David, you were telling me t- this morning about how, what was that thing? She, her position on abortion is hardly, um, you know, mainstream. What is what is her view? Well, I think on the social issues, she's definitely moved to position herself 
um, really in some of the most extreme positions. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, she is in favor of not just abortion up to the time, the moment of birth, but she wants tax-funded abortion for women uh, and men, by the way. Uh, mm, okay. And, uh, she's, she's led the charge on the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. She, she claimed she believed everything that uh, mm -hmm. he was accused of. Right, she did. The question with that, of course, is uh, what about all the accusations against Joe Biden? Does she believe the women in that? So mm -hmm. why wouldn't the Me standard apply in that case as well? She actually did say during the campaign for the presidential nomination that she did believe those accusations. That's right. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of this extreme position on abortion, she has come out against the Knights of Columbus, one of the largest and oldest charitable organizations in the United States, says so she considers it an extremist group and concomitantly Knights says... Knights of Columbus are extremists? Right, right, yeah. That's wow. a, a pretty strange statement. And she's concomitantly said that Catholics are not fit to serve on the judiciary, in the judiciary, right. you yeah. know, as judge, serve as judges. Wow. Well, anyway, she uh, she's definitely holds her finger up to the wind to see mm -hmm. what is in her interest. And she changes her positions accordingly. And she tries to, in many respects, position herself in a unique way. Now, when she was running for president before, uh, she was doing fairly well, but she wasn't really getting support from blacks. It may be because... Uh, she didn't do enough of that to make her stand out enough. Uh, she's actually not African-American, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, right. Her mother was India Indian. Uh, her father uh, was uh, is Jamaican. Um, and so she has no history, really, uh, in that regard um, for how African-American have been uh, have been similar exposed. to Obama, though, if you think about it. Yeah, there's there's yeah, aspects of that that's similar to Obama. She's actually, incidentally, since her father is Jamaican, she actually has a dual citizenship. She's oh, also a citizen of Jamaica, uh. so she could technically run for office in Jamaica, also. Uh -huh. First Jamaican president of the United States. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. So so part of this. Bending in the wind, trying to attract attention. She, she said that she wanted to institute, if she had any problems getting a radical gun control program through Congress, she said, oh, I'll just do it through executive action. Right. Which is, mm -hmm. I don't mean to quite leap the gun into our current things about well, executive action. Well, you can see action, where we're but, going on that. But Vice President Biden, and who was her rival at that time, said, now, Kamala, this is unconstitutional. We can't just amend the Constitution by presidential fiat. And she said, well, unlike you, Vice President Biden, I don't, you know, I don't, come on, Joe, don't say, no, we can't. Say, yes, we can, you know, and she gets a ton oh, of laughs for this. So she's just <laughs> laughing at the constitutional constraints that there are on government officials. I, mm -hmm. I don't see that as a very good attitude. She's also said that uh, if elected, 
she would see that within 100 days, these executive orders yeah. on yeah. gun control would be implemented. Right. Exactly. Right. right. And right. court packing. She also, yes. she yeah. says, yeah. well, if I have problems with the Supreme Court, uh, maybe we should expand the Supreme Court. This yeah. Is, the uh, idea there is to go from nine to 15, right? Right. You go from nine to 15 and you add the extra extra six would be added during the Biden Harris administration, presumably. Right. So the, the rules of the game don't right. result in your winning. Change the right. rules. Right. Right. That's overturn the underlying the thing. Just, overturn the just board. Right. Right. One, of her, one of her gun control measures is a mandatory gun buyback program for AR-15 owners, which would essentially confiscate all right. AR-15s. Mandatory buyback. Yeah. Right. Mandatory buyback. Wow. Um, and, you know, just she, as sort of like. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. I was going to say that um, one issue that was raised in the debates by Tulsi Gabbard about her right. was that she was responsible for prosecuting something. It was either 1,500 or 2,000 people on marijuana charges. Um, and and then she uh on a radio station, it was actually on, um, uh, I forget which radio program. Um, but anyway, she was saying that when she was in college, uh, she defied the law and smoked marijuana because she wanted to relate to the, um, the hip hop music at, at that time. And she referred to a couple of artists. Mm-hmm. But we found out afterward that that music by those artists did not appear until not only after she graduated, but after she went to law school and graduated. Oh. Hmm. So, well, so if you take enough marijuana, you kind of get the time mixed up. <laughs> that's right, true. My, that's true. But my point <laughs> is that she is a liar. Uh, How about she that basically she's a liar? <laughs> will distort things. And so a lot of people view her as deceptive and duplicitous and so on and so forth. Not to say that other politicians are not also, right. but it's she been, has a heard, particular history. Right. And uh, she, uh, for example, was the person who pushed for the, not just the prosecution of David DeLeden and the Center for Medical Progress, who had, as some of you may know, the videos of uh, staff members of Planned Parenthood admitting the sale of aborted baby parts for profit. But she actually authorized the police to um, break into their home, his home, seize the videos, um, and so on and so forth. And so it was it, wow. one of the things that happened was that Planned Parenthood incidentally hired um, Fusion GPS uh, to do the PR. Uh, I the remember Fusion public. GPS. Mm-hmm. And, and, Fusion GPS. Well, they, is the they, same. Have a, they have proven uh, public relations expertise, so why not? Right, yeah, they have proven <laughs> public relations expertise, and that expertise includes fabricating the Trump Russia dossier, right, right, and uh, lying about it. Uh, so, in any, you know, the, the whole point was to claim that the Center for Medical Progress videos were deceptively edited, and it was just another one of these uh, outrageous instances. But what it boils down to, getting back to what Bill is saying about the Constitution, is that she believed that the Leiden in particular and the Center for Medical Progress had no First Amendment rights at all. Yeah. And so, so forget they could be about tra- so so we used right. to think of liberals, 
perhaps too generously, but we thought of liberals as believing in freedom of speech. This is before deplatforming and cancel culture. We used to think they believed in freedom of the press, and that was until we saw the Obama administration's crackdown on the press and leaker mania and whatever. But this mm. this uh, thing I'm trying to get at the journalists who were trying to get into the investigation of the body parts uh, shows really not much respect for that. And criminal justice, I think we can say, you know, yes, some people supported the Republicans and the president who were looking to make some sensible criminal justice reforms. But a lot of them are willing for the sake of power to just trample on the rights of defendants and due process. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty ugly, actually. It's pretty ugly, but also she she is, her record is like the the Jesse Smollett incident. Yeah. So she's even bought into that. She bought into that. Absolutely. So in the Kavanaugh hearing and so forth. So even if when the evidence comes out that she's wrong, she's never she's never she's repudiated. N- her never recanted. On, on, right, no. Never recanted on, on no. Smollett. That's well, right. There's a kind of a ruthlessness pattern in a lot yeah. of her uh, activities here in California um, that makes people worried. Here's something that this is like from an out of left field, but it's kind of interesting. There was a piece in The Intercept uh, a couple of days ago showing how Wikipedia not just some outside user, but actually one of the Wikipedia staff editors has been for the past few months um, sanitizing her Wikipedia ta- page right. and taking out a whole bunch of unflattering stuff, for example, including the case, information about the case of how she handled uh, the aftermath of this weird situation some years back when Matrice Richardson, an African-American woman, uh, was detained by the Malibu Sheriff's Office for not paying her bill at a dinner in Malibu. And then suddenly she was released in the middle of the night and then she died. Um, and uh, Kamala uh, put some uh, wrench uh, into the machinery of investigation and then the truth never came out. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other things that have been recently uh, eliminated from Kamala Harris's Wikipedia page. So that Why is that? Yeah. That is very fascinating. Graham, you are always on top of popular culture and it's mostly hey, that's intellectual me. form. I'm Mr. Pop Culture. Well, but you know, uh, it's a strange picture. Uh, You can look at Senator Harris from a variety of angles. Uh, There's that ruthlessness. Uh, There is the kind of, at this point in all of her recent record, a kind of a fierce commitment to the uh, aims of the left on social issues. Um, uh, Fierce to the degree of using her ruthlessness against those who stand against uh, things like uh, abortion and against those who'd like to exercise their Second Amendment rights. And yet at the same time, many on the far left are suspicious of her, I guess because the police thing, but not only that, people are wondering, well, so what does Wall Street think about Kamala Harris compared to the other choices? And I'm seeing the stock market has been going up since this yep. announcement. Yep. Uh, does Wall Street hate her or like her? If she's far left, you think Wall Street would hate her, but David? I think, I think they think they can have an accommodation with her. And certainly the Silicon Valley big firms that are flooding the advisory boards of the Biden-Harris campaign nowadays think they can do that. I think one of the reasons the left is cherry of her is that she flip-flopped on socialized medicine oh, so when she first i take it she's in favor of it now what is she 
When she first went into the presidential campaign, she didn't really have much national standing. And so she hitched her wagon to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. And in mm-hmm. all her pitches, mm-hmm. her mailings, her online ads, her you know, ads on Facebook, her her speeches, her little set speeches, she said, I I no one can be deprived of this. I am I'm a backer, I'm a co-sponsor of etc. She had already done also done this on the Green New Deal, but the point is she was just like right in the front. And she was shoulder to shoulder with Bernie. And then she made this statement that she was, you know, willing to get rid of all private medical care, right. private medical insurance, sorry. And she started plummeting. Right. So, so I think so she flip flopped. She flip flopped. She just came up right. with a exactly. you know, more moderate thing. And the left didn't like that. You know, they'd rather Gabbard, have, Gabbard attacked her in the presidential race about her duplicity um, as a prosecutor. And then this whole thing with Sanders about Medicare for all and uh, banning private insurance. And uh, some believe that, that those things resulted in her being viewed as not believable. And so she could not get the traction and then pulled out of the race. Right. And... Um, I think on this issue of why Wall Street likes her so much, I mean, the bulk of Wall Street are Democrats. and uh, The bulk of Silicon Valley. Right. And so they want a ticket with people who will be malleable for what they want. And they know that ideological zealots are not trustworthy, like Warren saying. Bass. Karen Bass. Right. And so the view is that uh, Harris and Biden have a track record of adapting to what is politically opportune based on the pressure that they they receive. And so uh, Wall Street doesn't want Elizabeth Warren or, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and also because they believe that they will alienate uh, middle-class Americans. But they think that this is a way to appeal to middle-class Americans. Um, And also the view, I believe, is that, um, you know, clearly Biden, what, is going to be 82? Or he's 82 now? This is the next president. Right. So the question is whether he would survive uh, four years or whether he would even step down. And who would be the the heir apparent? Don't you think that Susan Rice or Amy Klobuchar would have been more authentically moderate. I mean, for so all, I think that what we're finding here is that, of course, but I think the I mean, problem with Rice is that I th- there's a been elected, yeah, but also Libya Durham, thing. you know, these re- these possible reports Durham, about right. the deep state right. could come out, and Rice will be front and It'd center. Be fried, that's right, right. And Harris is not really affected by that. So I think the view is that Harris is viewed as the heir apparent, and she's younger. And uh, she would be the, uh, the president if Biden steps down or is ill. And so they think they would have someone who they could control. Establishment kind of likes Kamala Harris, even though she tries to have a profile of being a hard progressive. Whatever kind of progressive she is, maybe she's not a deep principled progressive. Maybe she's not a deep principled anything. No, I One think of our uh, yeah. 
One of our ThinkSpot participants has just sent me a comment here uh, saying, she sounds like the perfect uh, ends justifies the means politician. Yes. And here's another interesting question, and we're going to get off of Kamala here in a minute, uh, but kind of maybe this is the last thing to mention here. Uh, one person, a couple people have written in saying, do you think that Kamala's criminal justice, most allegedly law and order record will hurt her? Or does it make her more experienced to handle BLM and police reform? Any thoughts on that? I have a thought, and that is that the Democrats are hoping that the Republicans can't handle this, that they can't point out that she's engaged in prosecutorial malfeasance, that she's done deeply wrong things and will still, will, will in attacking her, make her look like a law and order person and make the ticket look more moderate. That is their hope. They want to have it both ways. I think that's, that's I right. think that's right. And at the that's same right. time, I mean, she wants to ban fracking. We mentioned Medicare for all. She wants to ban all plastic. Um, you know, she, he, even during the campaign earlier, she wanted uh, Twitter to ban Trump's Twitter account. Oh, uh, oh. so I, I saw something today that the f former head of Twitter's censorship program, censorship is too strong a word, but let's say their editing program. Their content uh, supervision. Their content control program <laughs> is on her publicity team now. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. So you can see there's some interpenetration here. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, you know, if, if big money loves her and if she's committed to f far left positions on everything else and she's a little ruthless and unprincipled, she may be remarkably agile, but maybe um, a little scary. Well, Think, I want to say I don't like her, but I would also think it would be worse if we had had Bass or Warren. I think that's well, I probably right because they're yeah, more ideologically motivated. I think this is a, part of it is to placate the Obama Clinton powers in the Democratic Party, and so she will defend unions. She'll she'll support uh, regulation she'll of a, employers. She'll be a puppet of the teachers' unions. That's for right. Sure. The teachers' unions, and she is going to be a big proponent of green corporate welfare because that's politically correct. She wants to re-enter re the Paris Agreement. Uh, I think she, for her climate initiative, she's proposing, I believe it was ten trillion dollars. Uh, trillion here, okay, trillion so there. Pretty soon it adds up to real money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's real right. money. Thank yeah. you, Senator Everett Dirksen. Uh, may you rest in peace. Well, yeah. okay, pivot here. But so she's she's put us on notice that she's going to do a lot of things she wants to do through executive orders if necessary. Um, now, in the current context, that sounds kind of familiar to somebody else, doesn't it? Here we have President Trump, uh, the leader of the right. I guess that's what he is at the moment. And uh, the right used to stand in America for constitutional probity and limits and jurisdictional precision. And now he's and Separation just, of powers. Separation mm -hmm. of powers, yeah. So now President Trump has issued these executive orders, expanding unemployment benefits, uh, $400, the actress $400 uh, surplus a week, partly funded by the states. He's going to make them pay for 25% of it, apparently. Uh, he's going to, he's already issued this uh, 
executive order saying that the payroll tax is going to be, well, not collected for a while. And through the end of the year. Yeah, through the end of the year, right? Although. um, And he's also said that if he's elected, maybe he'll forgive these things. Well, he said he wants to make it permanent. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to abolish the payroll tax. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, David, I'm sure you'll have more to say on that. But I do think. So here's the thing. The the thing is that um, all of this is alarming because it looks kind of um, ruthless and unconstitutional, just like I was saying about uh, Kamala Harris a a bit ago. And there's more that President Trump has done through executive orders, which I won't rehearse at all. Um, Bill, I think you could comment, at least initially, on what seems to be prima facie case that President Trump is stepping outside of the constitutional role of the president, and we should be concerned. What, can you comment on that? I think it's troubling when any president of any party uh, is not abiding by the general idea that all expenditures should be appropriated by Congress. Now. If you dig into the justifications for this, which I have read about, Mm -hmm. you may be able to do some of these things. Maybe they're just temporary things and he's getting leverage against Congress. But on its face and symbolically, it looks like he is trying to spend money that isn't appropriated and really wasn't appropriated by Congress. They Mm -hmm. could not come to an agreement on it. And you can't just say, oh, we need to do it. And therefore, I'm going to do it. That's not a Republican way of government, small r. It certainly has uh, not been. So so that is troubling. Now, uh, you know, part of the blame for this goes goes to Congress because they word these bills, these statutes, vaguely. And they give little codicils of presidential discretion. And Which end up being legislative power, in effect. Yeah, yeah. So like they're handing off things that they're that they as the legislature are supposed to be doing to the executive branch and make them quasi legislators it's not the founders intention but anyway that's been going on it's hardly unique to this administration and look mm-hmm. at our regulatory I think the preceding one things, so the preceding administration used it pretty liberally well daca is an example of that you know mm-hmm. i mean it, and you know, I, I, you know, we can go back to the Roosevelt administration. I'm sure we can go back further. Yeah, let's go back to Lincoln. And, and Lincoln did right, some things back, uh, in right. wartime. That, yeah. it, it was not really wartime. It was insurrection time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. One of our commenters here with our ThinkSpot crowd uh, sent me a little comment here saying executive orders to get things done has become kind of the, the precedent that the primary way of doing business rather than an exception to the rule. I I worry about this. Yeah, I worry about it too. However, you have to realize that the federal government is the executive branch. The Supreme Court and the Congress are tiny as far as their budgets, the power they used in some respects, but the federal government is essentially, it's all the departments, it's all the agencies, it's the tax collections, it's the the army, it's the intelligence agencies, it's everything else. And the existence of the income tax itself, which was pushed by progressives, um, I would suggest itself is questionably (laughs) constitutional. Mm -hmm. And so the question, and it's not just on taxes, it's 
should Trump be able to reduce the the forces in Afghanistan or Syria or pull so out of NATO? Should he be able to, to deregulate, re recalibrate tariffs that like you know? Right. No, there's, the, the question is supposed if to be have, legislating on that. Right. So you know, it. I think Graham's point is an important one in that. This discretionary power in the executive branch is a big danger, but it's been going it on is. for yeah. you know 100 years or something, mm -hmm. and you know it goes back to Wilson and so on. So the point is that if he has executive orders that rein in the power of the executive, which he shouldn't have in the first place, is that justified? And that may be a very good point. That if he's tying his own hands, if it's Ulysses tying himself to the mast or getting his crew to tie him to the mast, maybe that's good. So. Right. I mean, we. I think it's you know back when the federal income tax was first passed, which was in the Civil War. Then it was it was ruled unconstitutional. It was it was rescinded, I guess. Then it was passed. Another measure was passed in 1895, that was ruled unconstitutional. And then they had the Sixteenth Amendment, and there is, I think, an interesting question of whether that was ratified properly. But the reason why the founders were against a head tax, which is what the income tax is, is because they viewed that as tyranny. They viewed it as involuntary servitude. They wanted the federal government only to be able to tax things, cargo, with excise taxes, or what have you. So there is, an, there is a point here that if it's sort of like Henry Hazlitt's book, uh, When Time Runs Back. Excellent, so, excellent story. Excellent way to understand the problem with social. Right. So you have this is the story of the, a premier of the Soviet Union uh, who either essentially comes to power and decides that the socialist system is a disaster and he wants to rein it in. So he starts taking actions because of his status to essentially deconstruct and eliminate this massive status system. Now, I'm not saying that Trump's doing that, but I think we need to look at this and not just a question of procedural rights, but also whether there are ways to manipulate the current system to deconstruct it itself. Uh, for example, there are different proposals and that, by economists and, 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 to... And part of the deep state or the establishment's discontent with Trump yes. is that he's willing to do that. That's right. Exactly. Well, he, well, they he don't actually like it. hold. It, it, it's not right. just good manners. It's that they want good manners and subservience. Right. Right. So, so is the income tax, a, is it a takings? Is it involuntary servitude? But also is his so for executive. Robert Nozick uh, considered it involuntary servitude. That's right. So if. If he has executive orders that deregulate, which means to reduce the burden of government, which the federal government, which it shouldn't have in the first place, is that is that okay or not? It's a really a paradox. And the weird thing politically right now is that by stepping out on this really probably unconstitutional limb with these executive orders, the president has put the Democrats in the position of defending higher taxes they for middle and lower in income a horrible. people. He has just jujitsued oh them. He has done you know, if you just appreciate it as, uh, you know, uh, artfulness, cleverness, he has put them in the worst horrible box because what are they going to do? Come out in favor of, you know, higher rents? Are they going to come out in favor of cutting off 
unemployment supplement. I mean, they're just fit to be tied. They don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. One of the ironies is that when the income tax was passed, it was presented as a class tax. I think the top rate was like 7% or something. So the lower rate was what, 1% or something. And then uh, in the 30s, it was switched to a, uh, a mass tax, everybody, and especially after the 40s. So now it's inverted. So his, his, his payroll tax suspension is up to people who make $100,000. So it's, it's the entire lower middle class. And I, sus I suspect the argument was the people working, they'll have more sp spendable income, which could be a stimulus. But also the people who are not working, we're giving, we're reducing the unemployment benefits, uh, which was give them a disincentive uh, not to work. And, and that would be a positive thing. So, I mean, the point here is how do you uh, essentially deconstruct this Leviathan system, which yeah. is catering to all these interest groups? In terms of the stimulus, though, I think we should be somewhat dubious because to me, I think the record of looking at this is what interests investors and interests entrepreneurs is a sense of a long run, many years running tax situation, regulatory situation mm -hmm. that's reliable to them and is more free and open and secure. And temporary jiggling with the, it's not really going to set, set uh, some kind of deep prosperity. I don't think it hurts anything. I think lower taxes are always good. But In I principle, to that's expect good. Too yeah. much of, expect too much of it, I think, might be uh, exaggerated. Perhaps. Yeah, and you know, the, there, I think that that's one of the reasons why he said, well, if I get elected, you know, my right. intention is to make it long to, permanent. He did, right. and I think that. And, but you're right. I mean, the, in Keynes believed that you could stimulate the economy depending on the structure of unemployment with a tax reduction, which is what John F. Kennedy did and others. So there, I think it is a, a real question of, of that and uh, but I think I, th I agree with you, Bill. I think it was a shrewd move, and I think that we need we need to uh, not miss the forest for the trees. Basically, we could recover the constitutional equilibrium that we once had. We'd all be better off. But boy, it is sure hard to know what the best tactic is to get from here to there. And yeah. maybe if you're dealing with a system which has become profoundly anti-constitutional, a few steps. Uh, that are themselves constitutionally dubious might be a necessary necessary leverage. Who knows? But then, regardless, right. <laughs> yep. it can be a slippery it's, slope. It's I, a very I know slippery this whole slope. Talk about how we have this horrible, cronyistic, overregulated economy. This is a bit of a leap, but Lebanon has just had this terrible catastrophe. Okay. And it exposed to the world, who didn't really know about this, that Lebanon was on kind of its last legs already. Yeah. Uh, they, they're, they're they have central, hyperinflation, too. They have hyperinflation. Their central bank has been scamming itself and the whole financial system in the country. They have a half a million civil servants for a country of 6.8 million people. Mm -hmm. They have yeah. a government 
railroad office with scores of employees, but no railroads run in Lebanon. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Is that a classic? Yeah. Uh, it's it's a client. It's a so so there were two. So it has eighteen religions in it in the country of Lebanon. And, but the big ones are the Christians and the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims. Druze are also in there. The power the sharing deal. So they had two. They had two big power sharing deals. One in the mid forties and one in 1990, where they divide up the spoils of leadership and essentially is a clientistic system, clientage, where the chiefs of these different ethnic political groups yeah. have client networks. And they hand out, and then they get fealty, kind of feudal. In the case of the Druze, it really is feudalistic. Uh, the Druze not being the worst of these people by any means. And uh, so this thing is very, very corrupt. I mean, the, the, 100% of businesses in, in survey <laughs> in the Lebanon said they had to use bribes in order to get anything done. Well, it's a, uh, it's the it's a system of what so Adam that, Smith. Called. We don't want our system to get worse and to get closer to that. Well, it's a system of mercantilism, is what yes, it is. It progressives, is despite their intent, essentially justify and give a narrative to support what is essentially a neo-mercantilist or corporatist system. Exactly. Right. They give legitimacy. Right. We talk, we talk equality, and we give welfare to the corporate uh, liberals and the corporate uh, interests. Yeah. Well, notice with these uh, cautionary examples, the, the more that the central government controls resources, economic activity, and society, the more all those realms will be divvied out as political spoils mm -hmm. because the temptation is overwhelming. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, we've got to you work toward, so right. the, we've got to work toward a, a situation where government, especially the central government controls less so it will be less politically constituted and more decisions by local communities, people, families, individuals. Uh, it, we can't keep going in that direction. By the way, one other so, thing um, I'll point out real quick is that the uh, Biden-Harris ticket also is strongly pro-wars, global wars. And, that's a scary combination. Right, and that's that's part of the reason I think that certain interests are aligned with them. And that fits in with the global push for climate control and, you know, essentially globalism. You can see it in their right. intense antagonism toward Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. She was running. She took a principled position questioning extravagant overseas adventures, uh, regime change wars is the, way, the phrase she used. Mm -hmm. And all the other candidates ganged up on her for this. Right. And uh, so I, and so she was Biden I, and Harris. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that she went after Harris was because of that. Yeah. We're going to pivot for just a couple of few comments on an issue that, um, well, it's related, um, but it's a little different angle on it. Um, Bill Evers, I know you can comment on this. I was just reading this article in the Washington Post. The headline is, uh, School Year Like No Other Launches with Chaos Coast to Coast. So in the context of all the complications we've been discussing, parents around the United States are pulling their hair out, maybe some literally trying to figure out 
what are they going to do in just a few weeks? Uh, the school districts are changing their policies one after the other. Uh, you just reported something to me in Los Angeles uh, that I found rather alarming. Can you comment on that and just give us a, a few pointers? It's, I mean, the whole education scene just begs out for a, a great humorist. It's so horrible. Uh, so what happened in Los Angeles is they, you know, the unions were holding out, oh, we don't want to work as much, uh, pay us much, much more. Uh, you know, we won't go back to work unless socialized medicine has come in. We won't go back to work unless there's a giant federal bailout of the L.A. district. So, but they, anyway, they got to an agreement with management. So they're going to work less. But part of the deal was they didn't want charter schools. So mm -hmm. the, the school board passed a measure making it virtually impossible to start any new charter schools and threatening existing charter schools who would have been no danger of renewal <clears throat> with uh, being ended. And it's typical of a very crazy educational system. All these kids really should be going back to school, but especially the youngest ones. And it's happening in some places. But uh, and, the, and the White House had a very excellent program uh, today. Uh, today is Wednesday, August 12th. And they had uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education. Uh, they had a number of parents and teachers and Paul Peterson of Harvard spoke quite elegantly, eloquently. Um, unfortunately, the Fox News commentator thought he was a physician, but he's really a political scientist. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and so that they're trying, the president and the administration and some officials are trying to have common sense here. It's interesting in Britain, there's much more of an engaged debate on this and Scotland yeah. is kind of opening up. Uh, I, I think the pressure is there, it's increasingly there to open the schools. As meanwhile, there's all sorts of other bizarre things going on. There's a movement to declare two plus two is five, mm -hmm. and that to believe that two plus two is four is racist and toxic white agenda. Well, is two plus two equals whatever you want? It right. could be 264. Right. Right. So then I think it's two plus two subjective. Two plus so two equals what you're identity group wants it to equal. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. So then there's another thing in uh, Southern Maine University. They want people to take a Black Lives Matter pledge. Okay. So staff and To be what? A student or an employee oh, or what? Yeah. To be an employee. And Yikes. maybe a student too. Anyway, it's, it's just not the right. I mean, I have no objection to say religious schools that want to have people on their staff be adherence to that religion, I, I think that's fine. But, you know, I don't think a regular university should be Public. having political right. tests like this. I, I think it's it's counter to the whole milieu of, of a search for knowledge and search for understanding and truth. Another, uh, you know, we have a new ethnic studies program in, in California. It's full of indoctrination. Uh, and there's just kind of an endless stream of bad news from academia. We're hitting a strange situation where the pandemic has required um, uh, a kind of closure, or at least seemed to require a kind of closure, um, which is overlaid with the situation in education, both K-12 and higher education, of the, the kind of unraveling of any kind of philosophical co coherence um, and 
a reasonableness in the curriculum, the two things are kind of exacerbating one another. It's like two, two toxins worsening one another. Well, one other thing is that since people can't get together, the bureaucrats or the very strategically positioned interest groups have more power than they might otherwise have when they were under mm -hmm. scrutiny or people could organize meetings or protests or something like that. So, for example, there's a school district in California that says they passed this in the school board meeting. No fiction is to be assigned in school that was written before the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So Trollope, George Eliot, uh, Dickens. Uh, Cicero. Uh, um, well, it's not <laughs> fiction, but I mean, maybe oh, you okay. think Cicero is fiction. The, the, how about the Aeneid? Yeah, honest, yeah and, but, but mm -hmm. also, you know, Hemingway, sure. uh, Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, this mm -hmm. is all now illegal. Yeah. Uh, Where again? Where did you say I this mean, is illegal? It's so bizarre and such a twisted reaction to what is supposedly response to the misbehavior by police that killed this, that murdered this. Uh, right. Arrested man. That it, it, it boggles the mind. That this could be going on. Yeah. But it's been below the I mean, surface so for a long time. It's been bubbling. And and the, the incident in Minneapolis was taken advantage by certain groups that have their agenda. And it, their agenda is not protecting black people. Because far more black people and children have been killed because of the violence and so forth. And the shutting down of schools. Want to have law enforcement. Right. Black exactly. people are buying guns to protect themselves. That's right. Yeah. Black people do not like muggings in their neighborhood. Mention that people in less advantaged neighborhoods want their children to be uh, strongly educated so they can advance that themselves their and their up. families. That's, That's their, their way up. Climbing That's right. of the ladder. Yeah. And, and these people who they are presenting want. themselves as advocates of such people in disadvantaged neighborhoods are actually creating policies that will further suppress the very people they claim to be standing for, yeah. not to mention others. But when I look at the TV, most of the Black Lives Matter protesters are whites. Oh, yes. I think that's uh, definitely true. What I think we need to look, look out for uh, is that in a situation regarding education in particular, where the, there's an ideologization, ideological corruption of the curriculum, um, and there is increasing pressure to try and control, um, if people are, if, if groups, organized groups are trying to block the exits then we need to really be on alert as parents in particular um, to make sure that our children are not caught inside a building that's going down in uh, metaphorical flames. That's the, the wrong time to block the exits. It's the wrong time to eliminate options for parents to create charter schools. Well, I think that's worse than that. I think that's the sort of karma that we're, that we're seeing is that parents are seeing that these teachers union and districts are really motivated to protect themselves and the children be damned. And so the parents the are discovering schools by ne and necessity. And they're trying to prevent private schools. That's right. I mean, look at the situation yep. in Montgomery County, Maryland. Mm -hmm. They wanted to block private schools from opening and making their own judgments about safety yep. and stuff like that. Luckily, the governor of Maryland said, hey, it's not your business. Let them do mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And but this is not the only this Maryland is just 
getting covered because it's near Washington, D.C. There's plenty of this going on around the country oh, yeah. where yeah. any competition to the teachers unions and the public schools yeah. is under extreme pressure. And, you know, these private schools are going to go out of business if they can't adjust flexibly to this current situation. Well, the parents have to do something. And so they're seeing more overtly the reality of what controls the public school system and and what it means and who is pushing to prevent parents to have options and what is productive. And uh, we have a book coming out, if you don't mind my making a plug, uh, coming out um, in a few months called Really Good Schools by James Tooley in England. And your, your point about people in England being more sensitized to educational choice options is definitely true. The response we're getting from people who have been critically looking at it and uh, writing comments for us and so forth is really a a great group of people. And I think that this kind of uh, sensitivity uh, and understanding is spreading in the United States as people see that the, the public school system is not educating young people, especially those most disadvantaged. And what are parents to do? Are they just supposed to um, put their children in a room and, and uh, let them simmer for a year? Is, is that the solution? I don't think so. Clearly not. And, you know, parents, I think, um, are waking up. And this could be a silver lining in the situation. Um, there are a lot of parents whose first instinct is, you know, other people should be providing for my, my children's education. Why aren't they providing for my children's education? These other people. Uh, but in fact, when it comes right down to it, push comes to shove, especially under these difficult circumstances, parents are waking up to the fact that they've got to do something. Right. And, and I, I would and say that. Right. Go ahead, Bill. I just want to say, you know, because we're somewhat close to concluding here, and I want to throw in something about Jimmy Lai and the situation in okay. Hong Kong. Last comment. So Go ahead. So. He's a newspaper publisher. He originally made his money in the fashion clothing business. And uh, he set up these newspapers. It's kind of like the New York Post or something like that. They're tabloid papers. But they are extremely uh, critical of the government. And they're very critical of the Communist Party. Uh, Jimmy Lai himself has kind of moderate classical liberal views. Uh, and he came to through bitter experience of having to deal with the government in mainland China. And so he's been very outspoken. He favors, uh, you know, democracy and checks and balances and civil liberties in Hong Kong and the traditional two, two systems idea that was supposed to have come with Hong Kong, leaving being a British colony and becoming part of China. And so the Chinese are reversing it. And it's part of the general anti-bourgeois liberalism campaign of the leader of communist China, Xi. And it's so they, they sent 200 police in to go into this guy's place and arrest him, his public, publishing house. And the warrant by no means, the warrant even indicated, don't go taking the stuff from the reporters. Hey, the police just took, well, they went through everything and they took what they wanted. And uh, you know, it's very courageous. The paper is still publishing. Uh, they expected, whatever, three times something like the normal publication run. It's been selling out. I, 
we just don't know how long this this kind of thing can last because the Chinese government is very tough, very ruthless, and very determined to kind of reverse the liberalizing trends that have been going on in China. And I think really this is kind of fascism because I it's mean, a it's yeah. a society that was totalitarian and communist and was liberalizing and, you know, stock markets and more free enterprise and more ability to talk about things and so forth were going on in China. And mobility. And under Xi, it has been reversed yeah. and it has yeah. been a terrible crackdown. Yeah, and I think, go ahead. I was going to say one last thing. <laughs> to plug another book, we have a book called China's Great Migration, which tells the story of the liberalizing measures that were adopted, partly because when they eliminated the restrictions on mobility in this in the country, 260 million people just got up and started moving and they started creating businesses and, and so forth. And the poor literally created this economic revolution and the government had to back off. And you know, there are different theories of, of what the, why they were willing to back off. But the point is that I think the Chinese Communist Party leadership is afraid that they're been losing control of the culture and the direction, and they have to stop it. And uh, they have to control it, but they don't want to destroy, they don't want to go back to where they were as far as the economic prosperity, but I think that they, they try to uh, square a circle and, and it's not going to work. Just get a last couple comments here. Uh, we do need to uh, close off, but um, I think it's important to point out that um, in all these kind of situations, um, we, especially as citizens of the United States, uh, have the scope to stand for the key principles. If we stand for individual liberty and the dignity of the human person, um, a lot of these things can yet be reversed and righted. Uh, and uh, I encourage our friends around the country and, and elsewhere to uh, turn to the Independent Institute for some resources to do just that. Uh, for example, you can visit our, our webpage uh, where we have a lot of tremendous resources available for your use. Uh, every day there's articles that we're posting on our Beacon website, as you can see here. Uh, we invite you to visit uh, independent.org for resources on, on all these kind of topics. And then uh, I just want to thank again, ThinkSpot for being our kind of co-host and partner here. And I especially want to thank David Thoreau and Bill Evers for their insights. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, friends thank around you, the country. For thank you, Graham. This. Okay, thank everybody, you, and th thanks th for thank joining you, us. And please, thank you, ThinkSpot. Yeah, and, and thanks everybody who's been hanging there with us. Join us next time. Uh, it'll be uh, in a couple of weeks, I think, and we'll send you an email. Okay, take care.